Welcome to the Men's Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Sheridan House. We continue today in the series, So We Would Know, a study through the Gospel of John. If you missed any part of this series, you can find it and others online at sheridanhouse.org slash mbs. Well, we're in John chapter 17. It's the final chapter in the Upper Room Discourse, and it's a prayer. You know, one of the great blessings working at Sheridan House for me is I get to see the power of prayer. I get to see God working, literally working in people's lives every day and how he works everything for good. It's, it's getting a call from Bed Bath & Beyond a few weeks ago. And they're saying, hey, we have some floor samples. Can you guys just send over a truck and pick them up? The, normal, the people we normally give to can't come. And, and we go over there in a truck, and it's all these floor samples of, you know, vacuum cleaners and coffee makers and things that are just... Scratch and dent things, really, but they're really very, very nice, awesome to give to a single mom. And I, I get back, and I'm unloading the truck, and our single mom's coordinator looks at me, and she's astonished. I'm like, what's wrong? She goes, you don't understand. There was a single mom here earlier, about two hours ago, asking if we ever got any donated suitcases because her daughter got a, a scholarship to study abroad in Hong Kong. And she needs not just a suitcase. She needs a jumbo extra-large suitcase because she can only take one bag. And here you are, and I, and I told the mom, we don't, we don't get suitcases like that ever, but, you know, let's, let's pray. And so we prayed for a suitcase, and here you are unloading a, a truck, and you've got one suitcase, a jumbo extra-large purple suitcase for a girl. You know, Lord, how do you do that? And, and, and for me, it's, it's a little convicting because I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, this girl needs a suitcase. Let's go buy her a suitcase. But Amy is more in tune, I guess, because she's gives it to God, and God takes care of it. We get to see how he works. It's, it's the man who walked in with a donated gas card at the end of December. He came in and gave a $50 shell gas card, and, and those things are great to have because sometimes people come out to get food or clothing, and, and they'll turn to you, and they'll say, hey, do you have a couple dollars for gas? And it's nice every once in a while to go, hey, you know what? Here, fill it up. But nobody asked for a gas card in, in January, so at our single mom's training class, Amy used it. Our single mom's coordinator used it as a door prize. And the woman that won the door prize, well, she was just a little too emotional for a gas card. And afterwards, she came up and she goes, you, you got you to know that I, I really wanted to be here tonight. I needed to be here tonight. But I didn't have any gas to get there. But I needed to be there. So I got in the car and I grabbed the steering wheel prayed the whole way, Lord, if you could just get me to Sheridan House, I'll find a way to get home. And she goes, I literally pulled in on fumes. And you hand me a gas. Glory to God. She gave glory to God. Chapter 17, it's more than a prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. And I know your, my Bible says Matthew chapter 6 is the Lord's Prayer. That's not the Lord's Prayer. That's Jesus teaching us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6. It's a pattern, and it's important. You see, prayer is not a way to get God to do our will on earth. Prayer is a way to get man to do God's will on earth. Amen? It's a profound difference. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, pray like this. Matthew 6, 9. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Yeah. The only thing we give praise to is God. He says, may your kingdom come. Yeah, Christ is one. 
May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah, the sovereignty of God. We've got to recognize the sovereignty of God, who God is, and the sovereignty of God. And then he says, give us today the food we need, all things necessary for life. And forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Yeah, we have to get our relationship right with God. And don't let us yield into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's fellowship with the Father. Chapter 17 is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, actually praying. That is the Lord's Prayer. And you know what? We get to see what's on Jesus' prayer list. We get to see what's on his prayer list, and that's pretty cool. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In verses 6 through 19, in, in John chapter 17, he's praying for the disciples. And in verses 20 through 26, well, he's praying for us. So he's praying for the disciples because he knows what they're about to go through. And he's praying for you because he put on skin. He knows what you go through. Chapter 17, it's also the longest prayer in the Bible. Longest prayer in the Bible. But you know what? I read it through this week, which I'm sure you're glad I did. It only takes three minutes to read it. Longest prayer in the Bible, you can read it through in three minutes. So it says a lot about public prayer, actually. Because you can pretty much say everything that you need to say in three minutes. And I can imagine, I got a weird imagination. I, got, I can imagine the angels in heaven when people pray those long, rambling, repeating prayers. I can imagine angels up there. And I, I'm thinking of the angels, the angels that guard the Garden of Eden, the cherubim, the angels that stand in the throne room with God. The cherubim are winged angels, and they have eyes over their entire body, eyes on their hands, eyes underneath their wings. And I, I just get this mental picture that those angels are up there, and when people are praying those long prayers that sound a little more spiritual than they need to, just kind of rolling their eyes and saying, oh, come on, get to the point. And I know, I know that sounds harsh, but that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus said, when you pray, don't babble on as as people of other religions do. They think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them. For your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Other translations say don't ramble on. Get to the point. Understand this prayer is one of the most remarkable chapters in the Bible. The great reformer John Knox read it over and over his entire lifetime. Knox called it the Holy of Holies of Temple Scripture. On his deathbed, his wife asked him, what would you like me to read? And he told her, go to where I first laid anchor, John chapter 17. Matthew Henry said it's the most remarkable prayer following the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. J. Vernon McGee says the upper room discourse is like climbing a mountain climaxing in this prayer. Martin Luther said, this is truly beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. Jesus opens up the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple, and it's so deep, so rich, 
so wide, no one can fathom it. Therefore, I feel totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. There's a lot going on, but I do get these two parts. Number one, we get to see just a glimpse how Jesus communicates with the Father. And number two, well, this is Jesus, our high priest, and he's interceding for you and for me. Romans 8.34 says, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. It's a continual action. Jesus is continually interceding for us. His entire life was a life of prayer. He began his ministry going to a solitary place to pray, Mark 1.35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 6.12, he went up to the mountaintop to pray. In those days, he went out to the mountains to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. He's our great intercessor, Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. He prays for you, and he prays for me. Sometimes I forget to pray. I mean, I mean to pray. I have a time set aside for prayer. I actually like to pray in the car on the way to work. I got about a 12-minute commute. It's perfect. Sometimes I get distracted. If you forget to pray, let me just assure you of this. Jesus didn't forget to pray. He prayed for you. Listen to the focus of this prayer. Our verses this morning, John chapter 17, verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, so he can give glory back to you. It says he just finished speaking these words. What words? Well, he was in the, in the upper room talking to the disciples about the Father. Now he's talking to the Father about the disciples. It goes from instruction to pray, to prayer. And, and we see it's okay to pray out loud. It, it says he looked up to heaven, so it's okay to have your eyes open. It's a good thing. I pray in the car. We don't have to be on our knees, on bended knees with their eyes closed at the foot of the bed. You can, but you don't have to. Notice it's okay to pray for yourself. I've always felt selfish to pray for myself. I've always been, been reluctant to pray for myself. I mean, I, there are people with real needs. I kind of I got it pretty good. But it's essential because before we go to the Lord for others, we need to first be right with God. We have to get our heart right with God. Before we pray, we have to first acknowledge who God is. His name is holy. And then we pray for ourselves. It's not being selfish. It's absolutely necessary. Notice how this prayer begins. He says, Father, the time has come. Father, the time has come. What time? What hour? Well, the hour that was set way back before time. As Jesus is speaking, the clock is striking, the hour set back in eternity. This is the lamb that was slain before the world was created. Revelation 13.8 says, 
And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They're the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. That time. Remember when he started his ministry, his first miracle in Cana at the wedding feast. They ran out of wine. His mom comes to him and says, hey, they ran out of wine, you know, do your thing. And in 2.4, he says, dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Well, the hour's now come. The time where he's going to pay for your sins and my sins. It's the hour that he literally takes on the sins of the world and dies a substitutionary death for you and for me. And it doesn't end there. There'll be a resurrection. And then the last part of that verse says, glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. There's so much in that sentence, it's really hard to comprehend. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you by allowing me to die for the sins of man and be resurrected so I can give man back to you. He's a loving father who loves the world so much that he sent his son, his one and only begotten son, to die for us. And that son was raised from the dead and given a name above every other name and every knee will bow down, Philippians 2.9 says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He said, glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. Number one on your outline. The focus of Christ's prayer is that through his trial, crucifixion, and resurrection, this time might illuminate the way to God. Father, the time has come, the time of trials. He's going to endure not one, but six trials. Three before the Jews, three before Rome. The time of the beating, the flogging, the humiliation, the nails, the spear in the side, gasping for breath, the time of, of separation from God for the first time in all eternity, this is it. The time has come. Glorify your son. Why? So he can give glory back to you. On to verse 2. For you have given him authority over everyone in all the earth. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. That's an astonishing declaration. He has power over everyone. All. It says all. Everyone in all the earth. If he wanted, he can make everyone enslaved to him or subjection to him. All of us like robots. It's the last thing he would want to do, but he could. I noticed when, my, when I came home from work last night, I've got the coolest dog in the world, and he just absolutely goes nuts when we come home from work. Just crazy with joy, jumping around, spinning around, jumping up on the furniture, jumping up, just absolute, sometimes reckless joy. And that's how God wants us to love him. Not like a robot. Real love. It says he gives eternal life to each one you have given him. It brings up the choices to, the point as to whether or not we have a choice. Do we come to Christ on our own free will or are we simply chosen? And I realize I'm on thin ice right now. 
There are those who believe in the total sovereignty of God, the five points of Calvinism, you're chosen, it's not up to you. And then there are some that uh, are extreme Armenians, the other five points who believe it's totally your choice. The truth is, somehow they're both true. I don't know how it works, and I don't really care. I know this. They're both in the Bible. Sometimes in the same verse. John 6.37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the Father gives men to Christ. But you got to come. And apparently, those are the ones the Father gives him. So you can argue about election all you want, but you can come. And if you come... He will not cast you out. So if you come, you are the elect. God the Father has given us to God the Son, Jesus. And Jesus has this glory, glorious position of being the door. John 10.9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and, I will, and will go in and out and find pasture. God the Son, God the son put on skin to become a man. He chose to empty himself of his godness. Philippians 2 speaks of Jesus emptying himself, not of his deity. John makes it very clear the word became flesh. The little baby Mary held and fed and looked at in the eyes was 100% God. He emptied himself of the privileges of his deity. He set aside his glory. Philippians 2.5 reads, Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Let me read that again. Your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. You know, at Christmas time, we make such a big deal about the, the angels and the shepherds and the wise men that came to see Jesus when he was in a, ba a baby. We have these nativity scenes in our yards and in front of our churches, and it's really a shame because that's not how it should have been. The whole world should have been there. I mean, think about it. When Prince William married Kate, a hundred million people worldwide. Twenty-nine people in the United States, twenty-nine million people in the United States, but a hundred million people worldwide watched it live. Celebrities and dignitaries clamored to be in the church. When somebody important dies, like George H.W. Bush, or when a president dies, or John McCain, world leaders and representatives from all over the world come to pay their respects. That's how it should have been when Christ came to earth. He could have claimed that, but he set aside his glory. He knew what he was heading toward, and with all that coming up, Jesus' prayer focused on the glory that was to be had and to be given. He said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you, for you have given him authority over everyone in all the earth. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. Remember, he's, he's praying right now, out loud. The disciples are there so he can show them where the glory goes. 
And any glory we get comes from God and needs to go back to God. Even though Christ was co-equal to God, even though Christ the Word spoke the world into existence, he's praying and focusing, the real focus, totally giving all the glory to God. We need to adapt that focus. Number two on your outline. Glory is an ominous responsibility. Glory is an ominous responsibility. Number three on your outline. The complete purpose of our lives is glory to God. The complete purpose of our lives is glory to God. He had all the authority but he was ready to put it away for two higher purposes. Number four on your outline, Jesus put aside his rightful position, power, authority, and glory for three higher purposes. Letter A, sacrifice of himself. Letter B, glory to God. And letter C, Salvation of ungrateful man. So the question is, if God can put aside being America's idol, why is it so hard for us to give up prestige to make that sacrifice? Number five on your outline, the way I live my life, my attitude boils down to the purpose for which I live. Who or what is my life pointing towards? Jesus was given authority over all mankind, over all the earth, even to forgive sins. On to verse 3. And this is the way to have eternal life. Listen up, Christian. This is the way to have eternal life, to know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. So eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title, Messiah, King of Israel. Verse 4, I brought glory to you, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus is handling it in his final report. He hasn't died on the cross yet, but as far as God is concerned, he speaks of things which are not yet as if they are. God's outside of time. Future tense is the same as past tense. On the cross, Jesus said what? John 19, 30. It is finished. That means everything for redemption was done. Put a period on it. You see, the gospel is not what God is asking you to do. We're so thankful that the gospel is what God has already done for you. It all, it all boils down to what you do with that, your response. It says, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. You see, Jesus didn't say, I started the work, or I thought about the work, or I was going to get to the work. No, it's finished, which is a sobering thought, really. Because I don't think I could stand before God today and say, I've finished the work you gave me to do. I mean, there's so many things God's put on my heart that I'd like to do, I know I should do, but I just haven't done. 
Saul didn't finish the work. Samuel gave him one job to do. He said, do not let one Amalekite live. In 1 Samuel 15, 3, he said, now go and completely destroy the Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. It was very clear. Kill everyone. I know that sounds harsh. I'm in a men's group on Thursday night. One of the guys, we're, we're going through the book of Joshua at church, and the guy was like, I don't understand all this killing. I mean, it seems like a different God. But it's all about context. My pastor at, at uh, where I go to church gave this great illustration, and I'm going to steal it this morning because it's great. If I told you there was a 19-year-old man running up and down the beach shooting people with a machine gun, you would be, that's horrible. That's evil. How could anyone do such a thing? But if I told you that that, the date was June 6, 1944, well, then you would say, well, that 19-year-old man's a hero. He's liberating people from the Nazi empire, this regime that was exterminated. 17 million people in concentration camps, 6 million Jews, two-thirds of the Jewish population. They wiped it out. They experimented on people. He's a hero. Well, you've got to understand, like the Nazis, the Amalekites were a wicked people. Even the Babylonians had a bad view of them, calling them plunderers. They practiced child sacrifices, burning them alive, Okay? Torture was public entertainment. Sexual immorality was a sport. Right after the Israelites left Egypt from bondage, when Pharaoh finally let them them go with Moses, it was the Amalekites who attacked and slaughtered the weak and the elderly. Deuteronomy 12.31. God knew left unchecked those child sacrifices would continue. He knew those people were not redeemable. Samuel told Saul to not let one Amalekite live. Saul killed everyone except one. He kept the king as a trophy. 25 years later, wounded in battle, with his last breath, Saul asked his attacker, where are you from? And the young man said, I'm an Amalekite. You see, because Saul let Agag live, Agag live, and somewhere along the line, he had a son. Samuel said, don't let one single Amalekite live. Saul gave it a pretty good shot, 99.9%. But the one he didn't kill, the win he didn't finish, finished him. Whatever God's called you to do, you may think you have it under control. Saul did, David did. Remember Agag. We can safely assume God knew the Amalekite descendants would always bear rage against his people. You know the story of Esther, Haman, the man that, that was bent on exterminating all the Jews, that guy, his father was an Amalekite king. Jesus cried out, it is finished. He paid the price, he did the work. On to verse five. And now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. He said he revealed God to the world. A more accurate translation, a more accurate Bible translation reads, I have manifested your name. Manifested means to shine forth. Understand it's not a verbal declaration. When Jesus is saying, I manifested your name, he isn't saying he revealed God verbally. 
He's saying, I lived it out observable. Oh, Father, let that be us. That's Matthew 5.16. Jesus said, let your light so shine, let your light manifest itself before others that people will do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said, and now, Father, bring me into glory by bringing me home as it was in the beginning. Number six on your outline. Jesus focused on two things. Glory to God in his sacrifice and let her be the glory that was his in heaven when he got home. What do we need to learn from this prayer by Jesus? At a time where he knows what he's facing, he prays what? To bring glory to God. Thus in heaven, bringing glory to himself. We need that same heavenly focus. Number seven on your outline. Life will not always be going well, so we need to focus on where we're going. Life will not always be going well, so we need to focus on where we're going. Philippians 3.20 reads, But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. I know I'm going to heaven. But while I'm here, I want to run this race, and I want to finish it well. Philippians 2.16 reads, Hold tightly to the word of life, so that when Christ returns, I will be proud that I did not lose the race and that my work was not useless. Keep focus on two things. Why I'm here, where I'm going. If that's a certainty for you, then giving glory to God should be no problem. Philippians 3.14 says, I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven. 2 Timothy 4.7 reads, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race, and I remain faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that great day of return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his glorious return. Number eight on your outline. When I really, absolutely, positively know that I have been given citizenship in heaven... It should help me give any and all glory back to God. Some of us just live this life enduring, waiting, watching. Paul didn't do that. Even in prison, Paul kept the purpose and focus. Glory to God. Even in prison with the Praetorian Guard, glory to God. Number nine on your outline. Final point. Life is a matter of focus more than a matter of endurance. If you simply endure, you will wear out. If you keep focused on purpose, you will continue the race. Hebrews 12 reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarded its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. 
Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Instead of, don't you know who I am? It should be, I want you to see whose I am. Glory to God. That's the focus. That's how Jesus, the man, made it through the cross. Amen? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and how it causes us to refocus on you. Let that be our only focus, Lord. Everything else will take care of itself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.